Broadcasting live from the all lowercase Helvetica U.S. Army minimalist logo, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connollybot. And I am Gareth Strotherbot. And we are here to talk the creator today. This has been one that's been, for the insane lack of good marketing, something that I've been incredibly excited to see with you. And and I'm even more excited to get into it with you today, man. Yeah, definitely. We're going to have a lot to talk about. And we have big, big news this week. Mostly one piece of large news, which is that at long last, after, what, four months of striking the WGA and the AMPTP have made a deal the writer's strike is officially over we are going to be talking a little bit more about it in our pop culture reference today but there are some other pieces of related strike news that we have to mention as well including that Warner Brothers Discovery has reinstated the showrunners that they have since suspended during the strike that was like two weeks ago I feel like they just did that it's so funny all of these things <laughs> that came around and we were like wow we could have avoided all of that huh if like wbd <laughs> made his writers mad for no reason drew barrymore looks like an idiot for no reason oh that was still pretty funny though that was that oh, was the yeah. entertainment in the meantime of the strike i guess but you know i i i was so I was, like, filling the bathtub. I was, like, Y2K style, preparing for the worst and the longest strike ever. But I am pretty happily surprised that a, a big hurdle in really getting everything in this in this more, the, the, you know, the strikes at large of various of various unions. I This is this is really great news. And obviously, battle's not over yet. The SAG-AFTRA guild is still on strike with no real signs of... Of letting up from the AMPTP on their negotiations and more trouble brews on the horizon as Netflix, Disney, Max, and other streaming services create the Streaming Innovation Alliance, a kind of AMPTP explicitly for streaming services, which will be a very interesting thing to see grow or diminish in power over the next few months and years. Yeah, that's an interesting one. The fact that it's like a, a very pointed spearhead lobbyist group for streaming things where, I mean, so many of these problems for th that the strike is actually about here all from these streaming outlets of mistreatment of their of their artists and their workers. I It does feel a little weird that they're like, don't worry, guys, we're going to talk directly to the government now about all this and we'll We'll, we'll figure out whatever's going to work best for us, wink. And then it's really, I mean, God knows how that kind of alliance is going to affect what the people who are striking right now are actually fighting for. But like I said, we're going to be covering more in depth about the actual deal between the WGA and the AMPTP when we hop on over to our pop culture reference after our main segment today. So make sure to tune in for that and listen to what the writers actually got out of this deal, which is a really good one. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about the passing of acting legend Michael Gambon, which is, I mean, he really touched so many corners of the entertainment industry, and I mean, I he's Dumbledore, for Christ's sake. He, he was part of our childhood. We were just talking Harry Potter very recently. It's, it's, it's sad to see him go. And it's incredible, you mentioned him touching so many corners of the media landscape. What a long and varied career he has had, from bizarre cult classics like The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover and The Singing Detective which if you've not watched any of Seamus I have on DVD <laughs> and is a fascinating little TV show from the 80s that is really really good but really strange and I of course love him for his voice work in both Paddington films mm -hmm. and I think he is wonderful as the narrator in Hail Caesar Oh I didn't I had not seen seen Hail Caesar, but I, I that's been on my list forever. I didn't know he was involved in that one. Yeah, he the narrator of that film, not that the narrator to any movie isn't important, but I think that the narrator plays a really specific thematic role in Hail Caesar that it wouldn't work as well if they didn't have somebody really talented behind mm. the mic. And I mean, I 
I mean, fa- famously, I also I know the name Gambon. I'm so horrible with celebrity names, actor names, but I I know this name so well because of his. I don't want to call it his corner of honor. He he was famously uh, they named a corner of the Top Gear test track after him uh, in 2002 because of his absolutely reckless driving when they, <laughs> he was on that show. He like almost flips his car on this corner, and from then on until the original hosts of Top Gear left, they called that corner Gambon and they said it every single episode in his honor just because he was a maniac and I, I think he did so many great appearances on that show they they, they were very very uh, friendly and I know Jeremy Clarkson did like a like a tribute to him in, uh, a couple days ago because they I think they were fairly close I did not know that that is hysterical yeah it's I recommend watching the video of him actually uh, christening that corner because he he could have been so hurt it is it's crazy well definitely a huge footprint on the cultural landscape whether or not he you know his most famous role is certainly Dumbledore but Mm -hmm. lots going on there we didn't even mention his work with Matthew Vaughn or I mean prolific voice acting and I'll definitely look up that Top Gear clip and I will watch Paddington and Hail Caesar with you at some point damn it well before Wonka you've gotta shave yes oh yes I do I'm on a clock now perfect but why don't we go ahead and take it on in and dive into the new science fiction film the creator let's do it Seamus, it's been a long time coming on us covering the creator. This has been on the podcast schedule pretty much since it was announced, I think, or at the very least since the first trailer came out. And, you know, I had a complicated relationship with this one, but I think it is pretty awe-inspiring nonetheless. But I want to get your thoughts before I get too much into it. I thought that the creator was phenomenal. I'm going to be honest, just visually one of the most beautiful and chilling sci-fi films I've seen since I don't know Alien like some like I I have not been this enthralled with a sci-fi concept in a long time and maybe it's because there's just been some you know not super inspired sci-fi things that have been happening in the last however long but the design of the mechanics were flawless I I don't want to call something like this like a cyberpunk idea but it was like a a mech mechanical punk everything was so it was moving pieces it wasn't just code. Everything was so very satisfying when the actual pieces of robotics, machinery, vehicles, like everything was designed 10 out of 10. I thought it was fantastic. Are there some problems conceptually with some of the more vaguely problematic things involved in the story itself? Maybe. But I think overall, it was very well written. I think the acting was fantastic. And the special effects were unlike anything I've seen in a long time. So I, I'm I'm looking forward to owning this in whatever grandiose steelbook special edition I can get of it. Because it is one of my favorite movies of the year, I think, at this point. I certainly agree that it is one of the most visually enthralling science fiction films to come out in decades. I think that, well, we talk all the time about how bad night scenes look in mm. movies oh, now. Man, yeah. This is a movie that knows how to shoot night scenes and Gareth Edwards, who is the director of Godzilla and Rogue One, did this film and I can see kind of the puzzle pieces falling into place of ideas that he was toying with visually in those films that have made their way into the creator and I think that it is going to come across because I am going to directly engage with some of the problems that I had with this film I think more than you are because I think you had fewer problems with it but I do want to be clear I think it's wonderful that we are getting a big budget science fiction epic uh, that looks as good as it is that has the caliber of acting and effects and production design that the creator has and I really did like it and I am invigorated by it. So, off the top, I want to say that. You alluded to some of the elements that are problematic, and it definitely does have some techno-orientalism, western savior elements going on that I think we'll get into a little bit more in spoilers when we can talk specifics. And also in spoilers, I want to talk about there are some, I think, pretty gaping structural and screenwriting issues in this movie that it's 
it's clear that they were focused so much on the world building and the atmosphere of the film that maybe some story was sacrificed in the process. But I overall do agree with you, Seamus, that this is a visual spectacle worth seeing in large format in the theater while you can. Go out and give it your money. I really do think you should. Definitely. Spectacle is a good way to put it. We have recently, you've been showing me the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies, and we, we through those three movies, we talked a lot about, like, scale and CGI set pieces and scale together, kind of, but I feel like this movie had such a great grasp on that, of, of the landscapes that they were working with that Gareth Edwards wanted to create for this, you know, new world that this movie takes place in. I It was just so mesmerizing. Every, every cut to blank area, cut to this shot showing the craziest, most massive neo-future skyscrapers and vehicles you've ever thought of. I, I, I did, it maybe did trick me a little bit more than you, because I, I was just getting blown away every time they were changing location, pretty much. I mean, we talk all the time, especially, we talk a lot of Star Wars on this show, and contemporary Star Wars, we do a lot of complaining about, like, well, we, we go to the planet and it looks, it's a rocky landscape <laughs> that's all gray and we're in yeah. the volume, and that's in a franchise where you're planet hopping everywhere, And here, Edwards is able to find so much in just, I mean, the vast majority of this movie takes place in a similar geographic area, but he just moves us around from urban to rural to mountainous to farmland in a way that every location feels very visually distinct. And he's also pulling some tricks like we talked about back all the way when we covered Skyfall and like the other Bond movies that Mendez is really good at creating a visual look that's not just the production design but the way he shoots an area so in Skyfall you know you get the really slick blue tinted cities against the Mm. orange dusty and obviously that's a Deacons movie too so I'm not going to give all the credit (laughs) to Sam Mendez but here you have Edwards teaming up with the great cinematographer Greg Fraser who has recently shot things like Dune and the Batman and also shot Rogue One with him and Oren Soffer is also credited as a director of photography on this film who I don't know personally but I would think did a pretty good job and I think they're doing a similar thing to what Mendez and Deacons do of not just designing environments that feel distinct from each other, but really shooting them differently to make them feel like different spaces. And it makes it feel like you're on more of an adventure and it makes the, the science fiction elements stand out all the more. Yeah. At at a certain point I was thinking while we were watching this, I was, I was getting scared of the expansion into the franchise of what this could be. And I know that's not necessarily, that was never necessarily on the table to begin with, I feel like. I never really had that in my head until we were getting, like, all of these incredibly distinct feeling locations and ways to shoot those locations, like you're saying, where I, I was like, I almost want, you know, the sequel, the, the the TV show, the idea of more time in these spaces in the way that they were presenting them to us. I they almost got me to to wish it in the theater, but I'm 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 glad that it it just kind of seems more like a individual piece that I I really really hope people go see, but I I know that they won't. And that that really does break my heart bigger opening night crowd for this than there was for Haunting in Venice. That is true. That That is true. And this wasn't the third in a franchise either, I I will say. It's a weird crowd at our our Thursday Night IMAX Uh, show. We have never been more confrontational in a theater, I feel like. We had multiple instances of of talking to people who needed to, I don't know, learn how to go see a movie in a theater. It was very weird. I don't think it's the worst show we've ever been to, but I don't know if we've ever had as much cause to be confrontational as we did. And and the fact that it was seemingly centered around us, it it was very strange. (laughs) We were were the epicenter of of a lot of it. I do want to mention, because I don't really want to get into story stuff at all until we hit spoilers, but I want to mention that I think that the cast here is doing a really phenomenal job. Allison Janney and Gemma Chan specifically, I think, 
are given, dare I say, underwritten female roles <laughs> that they do a lo- they give a lot of dimension to in their their nuances of their performance and also newcomer Madeline Una Voiles I think is the absolute star of this movie she is one of the best child performances I've ever seen in this I, movie. I was really do. just about to say that they they are phenomenal in this I am so easily annoyed by subpar child actors but this was it was great. I, I wanted to see more of her and John David Washington, who plays the the lead Joshua. They, you know, spending almost the entire movie together, it seems like I still somehow needed more uh, of those two characters interacting. Because for the times that they do, there, there was even a moment in the trailer that we got to uh, once we were actually seeing it yesterday. And the way that they stretch it out a little, you know, not trailerize it a little more mm-hmm. is like a stinger. I was getting a little choked up by the performance of Madeline there and that is maybe a weird thing to say about like a an action sci-fi drama thriller whatever you want to call it but it was it was like I don't know I thought it was phenomenal between them two I gotta say John David Washington who's an actor I really like was a little bit hot and cold for me in this I think he has great chemistry with the other characters but there are a few moments where I was like I don't know about what the choices he's making overall I think it's a pretty good performance uh, but it, it doesn't stand out to me as much as some of the other ones in the movie. Ken Watanabe, weirdly, doing nothing for me in this. Oh, I wanted a whole Ken Watanabe movie, I guess. I don't know. I love him. I think he's an incredible actor. And he brings such intensity to pretty much any role I've ever seen him in. And this was, this could have been the pinnacle of intense roles for him. But they kind of take him out of the equation for a lot of the movie. And I, w- I was expecting a little more there. And then the other two people... I want to bring up who are more supporting actors in this film but our people I like are Ralph Ineson who I didn't recognize until the third act of this movie and Veronica No who I think is a very serviceable actor when she pops up and stuff even though she's not like a huge name she was in To Five Bloods and then Seamus you're probably going to know her most from The Last Jedi she's Paige Tico at the beginning oh wow yeah you know what I should have known that probably <laughs> so you know I think good cast all around the performance is very incredible quality but i think overall it's really well cast and i'm happy it's all actors i enjoy seeing i'll say that yeah me too and i i hope we see uh some more of these actors come back around into the limelight again maybe in a movie that will get a little more attention for for what it deserves well you know hopefully this will be more in the conversation as it gets word of mouth out about it because i think that our theaters seemed pretty jazzed leaving last night yeah oh yeah they were there was you know a lot of interesting theater things going on um (laughs) definitely weird reactions i i don't know if everybody understood what movie they were coming to right away god bless them for bringing the energy i guess but it was not the energy (laughs) that we needed oh having having the really loud like almost fake laugh (laughs) going off behind us and Dare, dare I say, perhaps a fake laugh, yeah. Uh, but multiple times, I don't know what they're doing. De- whatever, I don't know. There was some, there was some good pockets of humor uh, embedded in this very intense plot that you know people appreciated as if they were a Marvel-y quip almost. But I, I think that me and you, we, we kind of recognized where the, the humor really actually poked through in a more substantive way. I, I don't know how to even really say that, but I agree. I think we should go ahead and get into spoilers because I keep almost walking myself in traps. So, final thoughts on the creator, spoiler-free, are that despite my misgivings with this film, and I do have plenty, I do think that it is an impressive technological marvel with solid performances, a charming story, outstanding production design that is worth the price of admission. Absolutely agreed. But here we go, official spoiler warning for the creator where we can actually talk about this babylon ad of a man and his robot child traversing new asia new asia let's do you want to talk do you want to jump yeah right let's into get that? it let's get this out of the way okay so i mentioned it has this like neo-orientalist twinge to it where the robots the artificial intelligence robots are oppressed 
in this world and they're hunted down by the West and for all intents and purposes the political messaging of this film inserts the robots just as Asian people. There are not really very there's really only one Asian character who isn't a robot and she was raised by robots and is the savior of all the other robots. And so I think that it creates a little bit of this perfect victim trope that also feels really a little condescending towards Asian people. I do not think this is the intention of the film at all, but I do think it's the way it reads. And it oversimplifies some elements that I don't think should be oversimplified, especially when you get into the fact that I don't know if this movie makes a quite compelling enough case for the intelligence of robot kind. Nor, or not intelligence, but like the the livingness of robot kind outside of the one character, uh, Alfie. And then is skewed even more when you get into how much of a Vietnam War movie this is. Very much so. I I mean, you know, doing a doing like a helicopter LZ drop in a in a grassy area, walking through rice paddy fields and and stuff is very is very strange. I mean, there there I was trying to take it as like a I mean, clearly allegories for Vietnam War, Korea, things like American military involvement in Southeast Asia. Asia getting out mm-hmm. of hand and having kind of carte blanche to do whatever they wanted as long as it's like yeah whatever like they're they, they have a line that's like we're not at war with these with the country or the people we're at war with like they're basically saying like we're at war with their culture and way of life we aren't yeah. actually at war with a people and it, that makes it so much like they're trying to say that in like a don't worry about it kind of way but it makes it so much worse sounding and there was a lot of that America bad, American militarism bad, the military industrial complex will go to whatever lengths to, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then there's also like the unification of like East Asian countries in this new world, you know, new Asia. It, it gave me a lot of, you know, 1984 style, like, is it is it entirely positive that we're having like globalization efforts to unite the people or is it more of like a way to retain power in in some way or another and i i think they kind of dig into that a little more when it's like america has become way more isolationist in terms of advanced technology and ai and robotics and things like that while the rest of the world is kind of flourishing with those i i i find it hard to completely condemn their view of like well maybe the world would unify if there was a baseline level of humanity in everyone and their understanding but it it comes off a little bit more problematic than i'm sure like you said the intentions were it works a little bit better as a war on terror allegory though it's not like that doesn't have its problems as well the new king of los angeles which made me think both of the new king of Tokyo in Akira, which is clearly a big influence on this movie. Damn, I should watch Akira. You should watch Akira. But on top of that, obviously made me think about 9-11 and the way that America used 9-11 as an excuse to create imperialist presence in countries that didn't really have anything to do with the attacks in 2001, but were hunting down entire peoples, whether they were affiliated with specific groups or not, which I think, you know, obviously, as you're getting into that description, fits pretty well with what's going on here in The Creator, but again, even then, I still think you run into problematic elements. I mean, it boils down to it's the Zootopia problem a little bit of (laughs) when your allegory is, well, people are prejudiced against predators because you know, they they have preconceived notions about them, but then you're also saying, well, it is inherent in nature that they are predators and that's something they're overcoming. You're like, I don't think that's an allegory that you necessarily want to <laughs> be... That's what I'm saying. ...making. Ugh. Yeah, so it's not the movie's intention to do this, but I think, again, if they had spent a little bit more time on the story, maybe yes. they would have caught some of these things that end up being a little bit problematic, even though I do think its heart is in the right place. I don't want to dwell on this too much, because I do think there's so much else to talk about in this film. 
I actually, after you and I saw it last night, filmmaker and critic Sedant Adlaka put out a piece about explicitly the Orientalism in the creator that I unfortunately oh. have not had time to read since we saw the movie and before we recorded this, but I'm definitely going to read it as soon as I can after we finish recording, and I'm going to plug that as another avenue through which to, if you wish to further explore that element of this film, go seek out. I would love for you to shoot me that article, that link. And we'll put it out on social media, too, because we have been neglecting our social media channels, <laughs> but we'll get that out. Yes, we, yes, we will. But... I, I think this is a good place to segue. Again, I said at the beginning, it's going to sound like I'm beating up on this movie a lot, and I did genuinely like it. I think this is a good place to transition into some of the other story problems that I had with this movie, and I don't know, I'll, I've been talking a lot, Seamus, so I don't know if, you, I don't want to put you on the spot and say, Seamus, what problems did you have with this story, which seems an awfully loaded position to put you in, but no, if I, you would like to touch base. I mean, we we both kind of had a consensus of, they, they had uh, an interesting couple of, uh, what felt like a false wrap-up a false uh third act wrap-up that that they kind of they do maybe even twice ish they they really drag out and we were just talking about how much we love like the unique ways they're shooting all of these different locations and and all of these you know interesting people and robots and i think it, it kind of meanders in spaces that it could use that to have these characters fall more in love with each other we kind of get a little more of an abrupt reveal of oh is it a reveal if you know it all along i don't know well, i guess it technically is in the writing of it all but i won't i won't fault it so much for having predictable tropey twists as much maybe i won't fault it as much as i should even for having predictable tropey twists I, it, it was if so fresh feeling otherwise i feel like we might have a little bit more forgiveness for it but yeah you know the fact that all of a sudden we we get that Alfie is the AI Jesus Christ uh, brain scan of Joshua's baby that is and that and that Nar Namada is his wife that he was undercover and lying to and they kind of do that all at once and then have a big confrontation in Tibet in the temple where she's on life support and then you I don't know I I think they could have bread crumbed that a little bit more along the way and not make it so much of a of a Babylon AD I don't know if I want to say that it's just it, Joshua seems so at odds with Alfie for so long and then I feel like there's more of an abrupt switch than I would like that that moment of we're both not going to heaven because you're not good and I'm not a person and that really that really hit me right in the chest and I was like oh all of a sudden minuscule gesture of Joshua adjusting Alfie's hat right after she says that and mm -hmm. you know clearly it's like oh they're on the lamb they're wanted they're hiding he's got to cover up but the it's such a ginger way that he does that that I was I it really got me hard and I, I think if they did a little bit more of that as they went instead of kind of keeping pace with the action that they set at the beginning I think that would have benefited this movie a ton yeah I think that this dynamic between the two of them like I mentioned up top has such strong chemistry but I agree is paced strangely I think the moment that you talked about from the trailers with the heaven discussion is probably the strongest point in the movie for them up until the third act, but there's a moment where I don't even know structurally what to call it. It's kind of the all is lost moment, but also not really when he finds his supposedly dead wife's wedding ring in their burned down old house mm. and yells at Alfie and then hugs her. And I'm like, I don't know if you guys have been through enough together yet for this moment to yeah. work. Same thing with the, the flashback friend uh, whose name Drew, maybe? Drew, yeah. I, I, I really liked him. I kind of wanted him along for the ride a little bit longer. And Yeah, I was like, your wife died like an hour ago. This yeah. Is like <laughs> yeah, oh man. She gets blown up by the ice cream man, which is super sad. Uh -huh. And then he's like cradling her body. And then I'm like, oh, this is going to give Joshua a little more perspective about like the love that people can have for these sentient beings. And then, nope, he bails on her. And, you know, he gets killed like the next scene after being like, we gotta go, the hunter killers from Terminator are after us, oh god. <laughs> 
and I I don't know. I I wish that he got maybe killed in the barrel bot vi- village. Maybe like yeah, that. I think, but he couldn't survive obviously. But he yeah. he needed a little bit more time because they also do this really. I mean, I really enjoyed the structure of the flashbacks that they put into this movie, where they don't tell you at all when you're going into the flashback and when you're back out of the flashback. So they kind of just pepper those in as we go and we get a very interesting one with Drew and Joshua from his initial insurgency into his undercover role there. So I really like that. I wish he got a little bit more, even if it was through flashbacks somehow, but I, I was also a huge fan of the title cards. I, I loved the intro with the old, like, robo commercials making it way more ambiguous when this universe kind of got up on advanced AI and how that affected the world up till, was it, 20, 2060 by the time we really get into it? After, after he loses his wife? I think so. It's either 2060 or 2065 because there's a five-year jump after yes. the the strike on on his wife which feels like they keep saying that but the world building also tells you that it's been more than that which i think is a little bit like i feel like they they aged up the world a little mm. bit too extremely in only five years but like, yeah i guess that's true but then that, that is also that they they make it they do they do a little string of time jumps at the beginning where it's like the nuking of la and then the time jump to him undercover and the night of the raid and then another time jump to five years after that so i think maybe we just kind of got caught up in the time jumps and yeah they didn't necessarily show us a little more of that evolution but that's fair i that's- I will I will give you that, Seamus. Thank you very much. I, I just really liked the Joshua's nuclear fallout cleanup job in, like, the wasteland of L.A. I thought that mm-hmm. was an interesting moment that could have been more than one scene, maybe, because that, that was great. But uh, no dice. No, we do not go back there. We do not see that lady who freaks out again. But I expected her to come back in some way. Me but too. I mean, she, she serves her function, which is, oh, if when you, when the ignorant westerners are actually exposed to the other to the ai they realize how human like it actually is mm-hmm. and therefore de-radicalizes them which you know i that's a very like cliff notesy way to do that it's, it's, well. it's pretty heavy-handed i mean i i yeah. just casually scanning like mummified radiation corpses and then being met with a freaking out robot i i just all together there is very very functionally well done i think it's a very impactful like that robot whoever voiced that robot great vocal performance mm. because i felt like that robot was super worried about the little girl who is dead in the car next to him oh yeah i i felt that and that is another thing that goes into one of the most intense things about this movie, I feel like, and and something that I appreciated but made my stomach turn is the robo-gore. I was talking to you a little bit about that yesterday, of just, like, they do not shy away from making a robot's injuries look horrific and and brutal, and there, there are, you know, the moment where we think Ken Watanabe is dead, and he's, like, shot through the chest, and his, like, android death rattles coming out of his mouth are so upsetting, and and to see his, like, circuitry with his metal bones, like, in the gaping hole in his chest, I, it's it's a lot to handle sometimes. And especially in something like the, you know, robot freakout, smash cut to sentient robot trash compactor. We're just going to crush them all at once. It's, it's a lot. I honestly think they could let us dwell on that a little bit more because it is really messed up. And... I also want to point out you were you were talking about Ken Watanabe's fake out death scene and I do think that an element of this movie that is as strong as the production design that's not going to be talked about as much because it is not as noticeable we don't think about it as much is the sound design which i think is some of the best sound design i have seen in years i think it's worth also noting that eric adol who is the senior sound supervisor on this film worked on well one last voyage of demeter which also has great oh. sound design which we talked about on yes, our we episode did. uh but he also worked on things like quiet place and godzilla 2014 oh that makes a lot of sense yeah th- the sound design goes back to my like mech punk future 
Neo Future thing we got going on. All the little clicks and clacks and the the robot parts spurring and moving and I mean right down to the like future weaponry, which I all thought was fantastic. I I, I think audibly incredible work. Yeah, I completely agree. Even the yeah the way voices are augmented, even when they're like in the spacesuits and things like yeah, that, oh yeah, is really effective. And it goes there's so many kind of transitioning back into the story world there's so many amazing concepts for scenes in this film that i think are really well executed i think alice and janney's character specifically is at the center of a lot of those moments her cool interrogation technique of scanning a dead guy's brain and then putting his scan into a robot so that she can talk to him for 30 seconds and he's freaking out that is one i think that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie it's obviously very unnerving but it's a really cool really original concept that i've not seen executed in that way before that they got us to understand really quickly and really well and then obviously sets up a great third act moment where john david washington's joshua gets to briefly reconnect with his dead his dead wife lots of his dead wife entries i mean she's walking around android style i also love alice and janney's death scene where you have a lot of things happening very quickly in succession Mm -hmm. that might get confusing to the audience but i think it's told really well and really clearly partially because so many of the elements of the scene are set up really well previously i talked a lot about this movie's script problems but i do think it is really good at setup payoff both in its humor style but also in its mechanical plot elements and so you have alice and janney who is shot by Ken Watanabe with a delayed explosive device. You have Alfie, who is able to turn off electronic devices, but we also know that Alice and Janney is constantly hyping up her soldiers to be like, okay, we're going to kill and execute as quickly and efficiently as humanly possible. So in very quick succession, she's shot. Alfie begins to spare her by using the Mm. electronic disruptance. And Alice and Janney realizes that she doesn't have time to tell her men to stop before they attack Alfie and Alfie's concentration is broken and Alice and Janney dies anyway. Dies knowing that the way that she has lived her life and trained her men is ultimately the reason that she wasn't able to be spared by the very people that she is trying to exterminate. Insanely well put there, man. I, I, you know, it gets a little... Like you're saying, it happens so fast. There's so many things happening. You you know, revelations left and right and then a rapid action sequence that ends in her turning into a cloud of pink mists blown <laughs> up entirely along with her men. I, I... Uh, I pretty much every character we talk about, I'm gonna say, I really wish we had more of them in this movie because then mm-hmm. she has her own like B plot of of we are behind enemy lines, we are you know interrogating people along the way. We have you know they're getting in full disguises. They have a stolen police truck. It's I I don't know. I I thought she was great, and that sequence of revelation for her where it it mirrors the demise of her whole squad at the beginning where the the one lady in like the tractor vehicle I don't know what that was about but she gets the same kind of uh latch on time delay grenade device and and that really really puts a a wrench in the works right away so to know that ultimately she has the last second of her life to realize that she has messed up so badly every step of the way I I thought it was so well done briefly and before we get into the third act because I think we're going to start talking a lot once we get there I don't really know where to put this but you know John David Washington's character name, as we've said multiple times, is Joshua. And I was thinking about this. We've not talked about Nomad a lot, by the way, which oh, is yeah. awesome and like kind of the crux of this movie. <laughs> One of the my favorite giants weapon of mass destruction that floats in orbit over new asia and the u.s uses to tactical nuke stuff constantly just absolute non-stop blue scanning lasers look incredible i love it so much but backing up a minute joshua i've always been enamored with the story of jericho from the bible i'm sure you're familiar seamus i indeed i am 
And I was like, I think that Joshua is leading the Israelites dur during that part of the Bible. And so I looked it up, and he is, in fact, leading the Israelites during the destruction of Jericho, which I think is relevant in its own right to this story. But when I looked it up, I was, I was, I was doing a little scroll through on the story of Jericho, and something I did not remember is that in the Bible, after they destroy Jericho, the next town that the Israelites go to is the town of Ai, which is spelled A-I, yeah, and they destroy that too. So up? Joshua <laughs> is the guy who destroys A-I in the Bible, which I think is fascinating. And on top of that, Joshua is also the character in the Bible that when he is in battle, prays to God and asks him to hold the sun in the sky longer so that he can finish and win the battle. And what happens in the third act of this movie, but Joshua is stuck on the outside, uh, uh, in the sky, on the outside of Nomad, waiting to get struck down, and he is calling to Alfie, you have to stop the inevitability of what is about to happen to me is that I'm about to get shot on a missile down to Show Earth and exploded. Uh, but this thing that's in orbit that is constantly moving, he shouts while in the midst of battle that it needs to be stopped and it is delivered to him so that he has time to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. And accomplish it he does. He absolutely blows up Nomad. And you know, in a very triumphant moment, obviously, there's a very fun, uh, like Independence Day style. Everyone around the world is running to the wreckage to celebrate and all that. But I uh, I really liked Nomad. I don't know. I know it's the bad guy and everything, but I loved the design. I loved how it looked inside. I love the fact that you can take a commercial flight there for some reason. Okay, I think it's weird that in this movie that's an allegory for the war on terror, they kind of do 9-11 at the end. Oh, yeah, I guess they do hijack a plane, don't they? <laughs> oh, no. Hold on. For the right reasons. For righteous for the right reasons. Re and they let everybody, everybody evacuate. It's fine. Those people on that flight must have had a terrible day. They got on the plane, they went to Nomad, immediately evacuated on an escape pod back to Earth to watch the fall of American militarism. Well, and they were trying to go... To the oh, yeah, moon. To, to moon They weren't colonies. even trying to go to Nomad. That, yeah, exactly. They, they were very nonchalantly like, due to an emergency, we had to land at a military installation. Like, not everybody on the planet knows what Nomad is. They couldn't have just said, <laughs> I don't know, whatever. That's, that's another just little tiny baby snippet of, like, world building that I really loved and I wanted uh, just maybe a snippet more was moon colonies question mark who owns the moon colonies are there ai things on the moon is there a battle happening on the moon for ai who knows the creator two moon wars moonraker moonraker that's a joke we've not made a moonraker joke in a while we used to make moonraker <laughs> jokes more often uh, i i i've still never seen it to this day but it is one of the best callback missions in 007 nightfire on Absolutely. xbox Love that I, one. I used to play that at the at the teen center, Seamus. Don't you worry. Oh, good. Okay, you you know all my my really weird references. That good. Speaking of all the wreckage falling to the ground, like the Death Star falling into the <laughs> yeah. into the shallows of whatever weird planet that is in the Rise of Skywalker. Alfie's really what is what's gonna happen to Alfie after this ends? Because Alfie doesn't know anybody. I guess. Alfie could go back to Ken Watanabe. Ken Watanabe is somehow still alive, but Alfie's parents are both dead, and yeah, sure, Nomad may be destroyed, but I would think that the entire might of Western militarism is going to hunt her down like Osama Bin Laden. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Ken Watanabe has a great speech a little before that in the fake third act at one point where he's like, do you want to know what's going to happen when we win this war? nothing's going to happen because we don't want to be at war. We're defending ourselves and we're just going to do our own thing here. You know, it's 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 seemingly a very good... Because also, right before the destruction of Nomad, we have a glimpse of American civilians protesting against oh, that's true. the Nomad Strikes. The Nomad Strikes specifically on these AI bases that is public knowledge for some reason. But it's like mass protests and in intercutting the different 
uh, shots of the wreckage hitting Earth, we see like a cheering American public at one point being like, this is great. They listened to us or some such. I don't know how, how they took that, but yeah, probably a great party in that in that area after <laughs> watching American the American military fall from space. Yeah, I think some of the political messaging here, once again, a little bit confused, but overall, I think that third act is probably the best part of the movie, other than the really messed up interrogating the dead guy's brain robot thing. Yeah, I I feel you, because I mean, you, we, I don't know if we specifically said it, but like the Joshua reuniting with the android version of his wife after having this full life-changing perspective-changing adventure where he finally understands that that's not just a that's not just a copy of his wife that is his wife that he gets to spend a final moment with mm-hmm. and and feel actual happiness instead of the jaded cynical version of that that he feels as this undercover operative that he's never been able to kind of shake the guilt from i i i think it's it was a beautiful beautifully designed moment of like the space station literally crashing to earth around them and they're in a green field a, a vertical farm that's in the nomad that they're just like they're among natural life and ai and they're in space but they're coming to earth they're i don't i, I it's it's beautifully done couple of quick third act shout outs before we wrap up our creator conversation love the terrifying heptapod tentacle monster that oh yeah you, the <laughs> the the guys from the matrix the weird tentacle guys uh-huh, that's trying to rip the escape pod apart before Alfie can get jettisoned off of Nomad before it blows up. Those are really cool. And, of course, we have to talk about Barrelbot. <laughs> yeah, Barrelbot 1 and Barrelbot 2. My homies love their weird uh, dedication to <laughs> the military, but also their, like, for whatever reason, the U.S. Army programmed fear into these <laughs> Barrelbots. <laughs> which is really disturbing not only because of their ideas about ai but just like why would you do that i don't know why would you make them run like buzz lightyear too the funniest jog into oblivion that those barrel bots could do well because they're suicide bombers so really why it's just cruel it's just cruel to give them that amount of sentience it's insane and the fact that Alfie is trying to comfort them as like before they blow up. Oh, oh, oh! Like Barrel, Barrelbot two bowing to Robo Jesus as like <laughs> you are my savior. I, I for a second I thought he was about to turn one eighty and start jogging back towards really, the boys. I really hope that's where that was going myself. Ah, me too. Uh, and it's it's similar. It's kind of repeated. I think in an equally effective way when they're going through the TSA robot and it's like, what is the purpose of your visit to the moon? And it, she sweetly reaches up and is like, to free all robots. He's like, okay, you're good to go. Good, good job, you're in, you're in. Yeah, convert, converting robots to the robo-Jesus cause every step of the way. Very, very much love that. Like Wally, you know? Like Wally. Who is who is Wally if not robo-Jesus? Uh, he's definitely up there, you know, for, in, in terms of the runnings for robo-Jesus. I also quickly, quickly yeah. want to shout out something that kind of bugged me a little bit, but also I found kind of, you know, fun in the moment. Uh, grenade fetching dog and C4 exploding monkey. I C4 w- monkey is my boy. Do not say a <laughs> word about C4 I just, monkey. I just, they could have had a third one. They didn't round it out is all. They could have had a third one. Where, like, a robo-monkey does something or something. I don't know. But I the, it was so weird well, that they did it twice and nothing else after that. I like the implication there. Again, another example of kind of this effortless world-building and the theme-building without explaining it to the camera. Hey, look, the animals think, uh, like, can relate to the robots as living beings. But humans can't. You know, the dog sees them as worth saving. The monkey... I don't really know how the monkey knows how C4 works, but I'm willing to overlook it because the monkey blows them up with C4, so... Also, the dog blows up robots, though. <laughs> like, he blows up robot cops of New Asia. So, I don't know if that's more about, like, the functions of nature will always persist even in the face of, like, robotics and AI or something, yeah. but I, I, I liked both of those moments regardless. I agree. I agree, and it, you know, it, it marries well with what you were talking about, about at the very end of the film, the juxtaposition of technology and nature 
and a human man and his robot human wife and all of it crashing down into one big conglomeration and, and ultimately exploding. <laughs> exploding so largely. Because, really, this this movie's kind of Star Wars. I don't know if you noticed. This guy made Rogue One, no, which is all no. about the Death Star, and then he made this movie, which is all about the Death Star. Yeah, so. a, a roving space station that drops death from above. I mean, yeah, that, that makes sense. I... I, I like them both. I think Rogue you know? One is one of the best new Star Wars movies. I think I think that Rogue One is one of the best Star Wars movies, and if it didn't have CGI Tarkin, which we've said 15,000 times, <laughs> it would really be in, it, in it, high-tier running. It'd be, like, maybe top three at that point. Like that's I mean, that's strong words, obviously, but it's such a good movie. And I think that we have to wrap up talking about the creator, which we started talking about Star Wars, which means it's time to stop talking <laughs> yes, about whatever the other exactly. thing was. <laughs> And, you know, if you've listened this far, presumably you have seen the movie. But if not, I recommend you go see the creator. And I also recommend that you read up on some of the more problematic elements from sources that are not your friendly neighborhood pop culture reference co-hosts. Yes, of course. Agreed wholeheartedly. But why don't we go ahead and move on over and talk about the real human beings winning over AI. (laughs) Yes, let's do it. For our pop culture reference. Let's do it. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be taking a closer look at the resolution of the WGA strike. On September 26th, 2023, the Writers Guild of America announced that it had reached a tentative agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, ending the writer's strike that has been active since May 2nd. While the deal has yet to be ratified by the WGA members, it is all but confirmed that the deal will go through. This three-year deal outlined a 12.5% pay increase for all WGA members. The strike's origins, which we've covered in-depth during our pop culture reference segment in episode 127, was primarily in an effort for writers to gain streaming residuals and protections against AI. Here's how the New Deal addressed those concerns. Streaming services will now provide viewership data to the WGA, something which previously had been rarely, if ever, divulged outside of streaming companies. The WGA will then be able to share this data with its members in an aggregated form, and writers will receive a 50% residual bonus if their piece of media is viewed by 20% or more of the service's domestic subscribers in the first 90 days of release. As for AI, it was agreed that AI-written material cannot be considered source material, and that AI cannot write or rewrite any literary material. Studios must also divulge to writers if any materials they give them are in any capacity AI-generated. Writers can choose to use AI while writing if they follow guidelines, but studios cannot require a writer to use it. Importantly, the WGA also reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writers' materials to train AI is prohibited by MBA or other law. This deal also addresses size minimums on writers' rooms, outlining regulations for stages such as when a series is in development or after it is greenlit. WGA leadership is very proud of this deal, as it ultimately addressed the majority of the concerns the Guild had going into the strike. Of course, despite this great progress, Hollywood productions will not return to normal for some time, as the SAG after strike is still ongoing with little sign of resolution or willingness to budge from the AMPTP. This likely means more delays and alternative programming over the coming several months. Additionally, the creation of the Streaming Innovation Alliance in our news segment likely spells additional resistance from studios when this deal ends in three years. Seamus, I am very glad that we were able to report that the WGA strike has come to an end and that they got a deal that essentially accounts for everything that was asked for originally. I honestly didn't think that this outcome was going to be so good, and it's a credit to both all nearly 12,000 striking WGA members, but specifically the WGA leadership team, that they were able to get such an outstanding concession out of the studios with this kind of thing. It's almost unbelievable believable how successful this was and how for a strike that I was assuming would last so much longer they they really laid down the law and got what was theirs and and that that is just very it's very hopeful for the future of the SAG after a strike as well considering the uh, SAG after just nearly unanimously voted to allow a video game industry strike for what is seemingly very very similar causes AI 
uh, takeovers uh, being replaced, working conditions, safety, things like that. So it seems like, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. We're kind of trading one strike for potentially another. And I I think we've got more <laughs> weekly strike updates in our future. I agree. I mean, certainly until SAG after is over, we'll still be hitting them up and we'll see what's going on in three years, Seamus. Oh, God. Fingers crossed it's not this all over again. But uh... Fingers, fingers crossed. <laughs> But let's go ahead and wrap things up for this episode as we kick it on over and save the rec center. Let's do it. Save the rec center! Now it's time to save the rec center, where we give you our weekly recommendations. Garrett, what do you got for us this week? Well, Seamus, on Paramount+, Plus, they recently debuted the new animated film... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. And again, not one of my favorite movies of the year, but I was very pleasantly surprised. I was kind of wary with how gung-ho people were over this movie, and it's got some story problems, but it's certainly the most faithful adaptation that the Ninja Turtles have ever had on screen, and I'm counting the 90s Jim Henson (laughs) puppet ones. I w- I really enjoyed I'm I'm not like a huge turtles guy. I enjoy the Ninja Turtles when they're done well and they certainly are here and I figured now that it's streaming on Paramount Plus, I would recommend it for the masses because it's got my official stamp of approval. You know what? I think that's this weekend for me. I I I really wanted to see that. It looked like a lot of fun. I have pretty much zero history with the turtles myself, but I I know that they're a lot of fun and I've always liked the concept of it. So to throw it all together in a big, pretty bundle like this, I'm really excited to take that piece of advice you just gave me and give it a watch. And the big thing that I'm going to say is I think the thing that makes this so unique is you can tell that the turtles are voiced by actual teenagers who are actually in the room collaborating with each other as they're recording. It feels really natural. They feel like real teenagers in as cringy a way as teenagers can feel. (laughs) And I really enjoyed that element is that so so seldom are the Ninja Turtles allowed to feel like teenagers on screen and they definitely do feel like teenagers here but Seamus what do you got this week well Garrett I've been thinking a lot about AI and future neo future stories about robot uprisings and all all of those lovely intense thriller style things and I can almost guarantee that I've brought this up on the show before probably rec centered it but Detroit Become Human has so much DNA in common with our main segment, The Creator, today that I think that it would, if, you, if you've if you seen The Creator and you liked The Creator, then I would very highly recommend getting into Detroit Become Human. It is from Quantic Dream, which we've vaguely mentioned before. They're the head of that studio, David Cage. Not the best guy, maybe not the best takes even on this game and the implications of some of the more intense things involved with these characters but I think overall it is a stunning game I almost said film because it damn near is it is one of the most photorealistic video games I've ever played the story is phenomenal our boy Clancy Brown is a main character that I absolutely love Clancy Brown kind of is like a sadder more alcoholic detective version of our friend Joshua from the main (laughs) segment today so if that has any any interest to you, I I think you should definitely check it out because not only is it absolutely visually stunning, it is for a very famously for a Quantic Dream game, the amount of different branches that you can take yourself on through the story, the amount of endings you can get, the amount of influence that actually goes into the decisions that you make is unparalleled in this type of game, and I highly recommend it. I don't think you've recommended this one before. I think you've you mentioned it during your rec center of Heavy Rain, which that must have been so many years ago now that you rec centered Heavy Rain. <laughs> yeah, probably. I really, up until you said what you were rec centering, thought you were rec centering Ex Machina, which is hilarious. <laughs> well, I, I, I kind of almost hinted at, th- at that earlier, but I, like I said, the concept of Robo Gore, very heavily influential on Ex Machina and Detroit Become Human. I would say even Detroit Become Human probably had a major direct influence 
influence on some of the visual things in the creator. Things like, you know, various ways to dispose of humanoid android oh, people. Oh, yeah, I'm, so, seeing, I'm seeing what you're saying. So, I mean, if, if you can stomach that level of weird gore, quote-unquote gore, I, I very much recommend it. Well, I've never played a Quantic Dream game, and... I do have this one through the PS Plus collection. I've been telling you that I will play it for years, and maybe I finally will get around to it now that you've officially rec-centered it on the show. Oh man, let me know when you do, and I'm going to judge every decision that you make, because oh boy, there's a lot of bad ones you can make. I'll, I'll make a stream just for you, James. <laughs> good, good, you're one Twitch viewer. That is me. But I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at PCR underscore podcast. Email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe on YouTube. Whatever you do, it does really help the show out. And next week, oh boy, out of the robo sci-fi cream of the crop. Well, maybe not the cream of the crop, but certainly, (laughs) you know, some good quality visual splendor and into Ahsoka, our full season review. (laughs) Coming a little bit late next week. I am out of town, so we're going to have to record later than I would like to, but it is Star Wars fans, don't worry. We are here to to digest the slop with you, and... (laughs) Oh, uh, man, I, I am very, very much looking forward to that. Uh, question mark? Am I looking forward to that? I don't Who knows? Know. I'm, I'm excited to have a full view of what this show is, I think is what I'm really excited for. I think that is a good way to put it, although I don't get the... We are we're one episode away from the finale now. We are, we are waiting on the finale to be released as of time of recording, and I am not having a lot of faith in them wrapping up as much as I maybe would have hoped that they were going to wrap up in this show, and, you know, there's been some pleasant <laughs> surprises. There's been some unpleasant not surprises. <laughs> so, yeah, overall, very interested for us to deep dive on this one next episode. Adios! amigos.